Welcome to episode 3 of Acting 360's Breaking the Ice. My name is Ayo. And my name is Connor. And we are your co-hosts. This week we are talking about mining. This is a sector that is crucial to the economies of both northern Canada and of Greenland. However, there are many ways to encourage more collaboration between the two locations. Moreover, there's a lot each industry can teach the other. We had two great guests join us on the show today. From Greenland, we are fortunate enough to have Hans Henriksen, who is the general manager of the Greenland School of Minerals and Petroleum. His school takes an innovative approach to mining, focusing on hands-on learning and practical experience in the industry. And we also spoke to Paul Gruner, the president and CEO of the Tancho Management LP. His cooperation serves the Yellowknife Dean First Nation and managed 15 companies serving the research industry, including the Diavik Diamond Mine and the Beer Snap Lake Mine. In our conversation, we discuss lessons Canada can learn from the Greenland Mining School, environmental sustainability, incorporating Indigenous interests into the mining industry, and more. Now let's get to it. So to get started, thank you both for being here today on Breaking the Ice. And perhaps just to get started, we could get both of you in just a few sentences to explain to our audience your personal professional background, just so they have an idea. Sure. Yeah. No. So Paul Gunner uh, with Deton Show Management LP. Um, I've got a number of years uh, sort of in the resource sector, both oil and gas uh, and now mining. Um, <clears throat> come from both an operation and management background uh, and spent last sort of 20 plus years in the north. So. I've worked uh, across uh, northern uh, British Columbia and Alberta in, in northern Canada, uh, Yukon, Alaska, and now Northwest Territories. Uh, in the last uh, eight years or so, I've been directly with the Indigenous business space, um, working with uh, local First Nations groups uh, as they build out their businesses uh, and develop their uh, communities. Thank you. And Hans? Yeah, well, my background is that, that I am actually Danish. But uh, I moved to Greenland in 1990 and started out as a teacher. Uh, then when the school here started, I was appointed the first manager. That was in 2008. Uh, I became general manager in 2011 and, you know, uh, still working on getting things done here. Great. Uh, my next question is for Paul. But can you tell us a little bit about the Chancho management? and how your organization is involved in the mining industry. Well, certainly. Yeah, so Deton Cho has been around for over 30 years, and it actually stands for Big Eagle in the Dene language. Uh, so there is uh, a meaning to it. And uh, so we started with a very modest $15,000 uh, grant 32 years ago now. Uh, and over that period of time, we've grown to be one of the largest private employers here in uh, Northwest Territories, predominantly involved uh, in the mining sector. Uh, so we're involved in uh, anything from construction, building uh, ice roads uh, to service a very active uh, diamond mining. Uh, we do all of the logistics support uh, for the uh, active mines uh, in NWT and then up into Nunavut. Uh, and we also have developed uh, the second largest camp catering, an indigenous owned camp catering company. So providing the camp catering cleaning services for those mines. We've been branching out uh, recently uh, into more of the reclamation mediation side uh, and now doing care and maintenance for several sites uh, and developing a full suite of uh, reclamation mediation services for those mines uh, as they come to end of life. So we're very, very active uh, in that mining space. And I think uh, one of the really cool things about it 
uh, is how much trust there is between uh, the First Nation and industry uh, in terms of, of what we're involved in, in terms of the supply chain. Uh, if we fail, they fail uh, and, and vice versa. So it's very much a symbiotic uh, relationship um, where we're working hand in hand uh, in ensuring a good, solid oversight uh, of, uh, of business uh, and ensuring the success for both groups. Great, thank you very much. Um, so a similar question, Hans, as well. And could you tell our audience about some of the work that's being done at the Greenland School of Minerals and Petroleum, specifically sort of the curriculum that your students uh, undergo when they enroll in the school? Well, we started the school in uh, 2008. The first years was you know, very, very slow. We didn't have any buildings. We didn't have any equipment. And uh, yeah, so we, uh, we started from scratch. In uh, 2010, we got our own building and we got a budget from government to buy uh, machinery. So I actually take that as a point of you know, starting uh, the school for, for, for real. In 2012, we started up two apprenticeship programs. We have a, a four-year apprenticeship program for contracting and a four-year program for mining. The students have to be here at the school for two years before they go to uh, apprenticeship with the companies. And then they come back to the final tests uh, and then they, they get the certificate to be skilled. Besides that, we do a lot of uh, specialized courses for the industry, both contracting and mining. Uh, we do uh, heavy machinery operator. It's by Norwegian certificates. We do drill rig operator, rigging and lifting, diamond core drilling, crushing, screening, Arctic first aid specialized for the industry, G GPS systems for heavy machinery, blasting courses. And so it's quite a range of, of specialized courses that we actually do here at the school. We're trying to keep up with all the new technology. Biggest problem is that, that well, we are a governmental uh, school. So uh, uh, I have to use a lot of uh, effort trying to get external funding for a lot of things because uh, the Greenland uh, government don't have, you know, uh, a lot of money. So, uh, and I'm competing with other schools in Greenland. So, so always a question, you know, how can I finance it? But right now we are going into a, uh, it's a drone-based blast planner system. Um, we are going into vibration measurements because in Greenland you blast a lot within city limits. So uh, uh, the restrictions for documentation that you do not damage anything towards blasting. We are right now going into this uh, Vulcan software designing program. And we got some new simulators that we are implementing on our heavy equipment program. Right, and one thing I found interesting about your school is that the students there actually learn on machines rather than strictly coursework as you've seen as, as, as is the case in, in some other mining schools. Could you talk a little bit about the machines that the students actually learn directly on and as well as the internship component that gets them that on the ground experience? For the surface mining, we, we, do, have, um, we do have the excavator, the backhoe, the, the front wheel loader, the grader, the dozer, and what's the last one? Oh yeah, the dumber. So actually six machines that have possibilities to get a certificate on. And uh, it's, it's very towards safety training, you know, that they learn how to operate safely. And then they uh, have to go to the companies to get more, you know, experience with operating the machines. So uh, we've been doing that since 2012. And uh, 
Yeah, well, we are under audit from the Norwegian authorities. So uh, they come here each year and look everything uh, after. So it's kind of a, we call that a quality stamp on the school that actually we can rehold this kind of training with uh, a Norwegian certificates. Uh, it is accepted in other countries. Okay, great, thank you. Um, so as a follow-up question to that, how important would you say mining is to the economy of Greenland as a whole? And also, what do you see as the future of mining in Greenland? For the mining industry, so far we have been very much concentrated on open, open pit mining, but we are going into more and more underground operations in Greenland. Currently, right now, we have two operating mines in Greenland. We have uh, Hudson Resources, that is Anthracite, it's open pit, and we've got Greenland Ruby, uh, also an open pit Dundas. The government just gave a permit to Dundas Titanium, uh, also open pit. And we got 10 breeze in the southern part of Greenland that is rare earth elements and it's also going to be an open pit operation. So we concentrated very much on, you know, training people towards open pit mining. But things are changing. We got, uh, it had been operating uh, back in time, it was called uh, Nedunak Gold Mine. But now there's a new company that, that uh, it was closed down, but they will reopen it and, uh, and start mining again. And that's just going to be a underground uh, operation. Now we've got a huge project, uh, project in uh, far up north. Uh, it's Ironbark, uh, they call it Tornfjord. It's going to be a huge sink operation. Uh, it's going to be open pit, but also underground. And I think it's very comparable to like uh, Red Dog in Alaska. You know, that, that will be the scale of that project. So it's going to be quite big. And then we hear um, about the global prices on iron ore. We have had a project that was stopped, uh, the Isuair project, iron ore, uh, very near Nuuk. And uh, we can see that, that uh, well, I talked to the guys who were involved in that project and, and they calculated that they needed to have, I think it was $48 per ton for, you know, break even. But now the prices are up to 200 and I think 30 uh, per ton. So uh, the people who are holding that license, you know, might uh, consider going into action. And that's also going to be a big scale uh, project. So uh, things are moving forward in Greenland. So far, I think we've been lucky that we have, you know, uh, smaller mining projects uh, running in Greenland because then we can keep up. Uh, it's going to be a huge challenge for the school if we're going to have, you know, a big scale mining projects. Also for, uh, well, the workforce of Greenland are relatively small and we can't force people to go into mining. They all have to volunteer for this kind of jobs. Most of it will be re on remote sites, so it takes another kind of living. So perhaps, uh, perhaps we could just um, bring Paul into the discussion now and see whether he thinks that whether he's heard anything from Hans thus far that he thinks Canada should be doing as well, especially in the, the realm of education, perhaps at Aurora College. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I think we are doing similar things around uh, training and development. Um, you know, we've got something called the Mine Training Society uh, that is directly funding training opportunities, particularly for local northern indigenous groups to actively participate in the mining sector. So even for a group like ours, um, you know, we're very active 
uh, in getting people on equipment, uh, getting the skills so they can actively participate, right? With the goal that there's a job at the end of it, right? We don't want to train and, and skill people without having meaningful employment at the end. I mean, that's pretty soul crushing to put your time and energy in. And, uh, you know, we were all young university students once and, and uh, you know, that can be very challenging. Um, I think where, where we would like to see more of it is uh, advancing some of those more technical type skills. So it's great to you know get the equipment operations and and the drill blast etc. You know very uh, uh, well versed at that. But what we're trying to put more time and energy into is into those more technical. So mine engineering. Um, how do you get more of the technologist uh, type uh, skill sets? Uh, project management, um, the ability to oversee uh, general leadership. Um, so particularly once you've moved past uh, an exploration type project into a full scale operation. Uh, and even, you know, going back to that reclamation mediation piece, you know, we've estimated that and Northwest Territories uh, alone is about 3 billion of reclamation mediation over the next 10, 20 years. Pan territorially, if you look at the three territories of Yukon, Northwest Territories and Nunavut, we're looking at six to eight billion. And so there's a whole economy emerging and developing just around that piece and making sure that we've got the advanced skills and again, leadership skills to actively participate in that. Um, and I think lastly, and, and this is one that sort of, you know, uh, mentioned Red Dog Mine in Alaska. So going back to a bit of my former history working in the state, um, you know, I love the fact that Nana Corporation, uh, which is an indigenous corporation operating in the state, they're the second largest, they own 35% of Red Dog Mine. Uh, and so I think there's a, a really big emphasis uh, about, you know, transferring those technical skills and even those leadership skills into the business skills. And how do we have uh, jurisdictions like Greenland, like uh, Northern Canada, et cetera, where our local um, Indigenous Aboriginal population, or even at that community level, where they're building businesses uh, that can service uh, those, those, uh, that resource sector and that economy, right? And that starts to create the circular economy, and you start to increase the amount of value that you're keeping at a local level. Right. And I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear your thoughts as well on what the role of mining will be in the, in the economy of Northern Canada in the years to come. Do you think it will continue to play as prominent a role as it does now? I, I would like to think so. Um, so I'm very personally a, a large proponent of the natural resource sector, uh, in this case, mining uh, and uh, sort of mineral development. I think the whole concept of environment social governance or ESG uh, that has become quite popular in global uh, investing circles. When you start combining that with the indigenous inclusion uh, within the supply chain and active participation, like the red dogs again around ownership, et cetera, I think that Northern Canada uh, is poised um, to be you know, a world-class leader uh, in terms of uh, ethical resource extraction. And therefore we can, we can provide a product uh, to the world in terms of uh, uh, amazing rocks, um, as you will. You know, we've got some incredible mineralization of uh, various types and forms. You know, if you look over in Nunavut, we were talking about iron ore. So you've got the Baffin Land Project, which is absolutely massive. Um, you've got some incredibly high grade uh, gold projects um, as high as three to four ounces per ton. Um, you know, we've got elevated costs that come with that, right? Uh, in terms of labor, there's obviously logistics challenges and, and some infrastructure challenges. But the com combination of having some incredible resources uh, and I think combining the ESG uh, and, and a, a globe that is um, 
increasingly uh, looking for ethical um, uh, mineral supply for, for the supply chain. I think Northern Canada is going to be well poised for that. And you're seeing active um, uh, exploration, particularly around the gold projects. Uh, Yukon is doing really well, uh, Nunavut, uh, NWT, Northwest Territories, uh, right now it's got a very active uh, diamond sector. Um, there's a luxury good, you know, that could that has some uh, downward pressure. Uh, but yeah, I, I really do. You know, those three territories make up 40% of Canada's landmass, uh, and a lot of it still unexplored. And what we do know is that we've got very high grade, very high potential. And building off that, how but how do we ensure that sort of the supplementary industries to mining actually come north? when we invest in mining in the north. So what I'm thinking, for example, is artificial intelligence industries or automation industries, uh, the sort of research that can supplement the mining industry. How do we bring those industries north when we are investing in mining in northern communities? Those are, those are naturally occurring. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's where the north has to be prepared, right? Um, so right now we are, uh, we've got the luxury of generating very good employment. Um, where, you know, uh, good solid compensation uh, benefits, etc. Uh, for those that are employed within the, the, the mining sector. But as we've seen from forestry, as we've seen from uh, oil and gas or, or the energy sector, an increasing level of automation, right? Um, so, you know, talking about, we were talking earlier about underground. Well, look at the automation that's starting to take place uh, and uh, autonomy uh, for um, uh, equipment underground or even above ground. Uh, and we're seeing projects around the world that are becoming increasingly more automated, right? So that's that's naturally going to happen. And again, because of, of some of the uh, the risks uh, involved, uh, some of the high cost drivers around employment, operating full scale camps on the Arctic, et cetera, that technology will naturally become embedded. Um, so if you look at De Beers, a uh, new project that they're proposing on the, uh, the Chitliach site uh, on uh, the Nunavut territory, so an existing De Beers project that we've got right now, Gacho Quay in Northwest Territories, uh, would have approximately 600 people on site, uh, four to 600 people. The Chitliach project, albeit slightly smaller in terms of production, estimated production, I believe they're estimating to have you know, 60 to 80. So a substantial reduction uh, of the uh, footprint uh, for people that would be operating on those sites. And therefore, you know, what does that mean for um, employment opportunities, et cetera? Again, we've got to be in a position where we can increase uh, the, uh, the, tech, the, the uh, technical skills that we've got, uh, increase the business aptitude uh, so that we can continue to be involved in that supply chain. And at the end of the day, make sure that we're, can, we're keeping as much as we can at a local level. And again, going back to that concept of the circular economy, uh, we've got to circulate those dollars uh, within, the, within the North, right? Um, and, and I think, you know, that can't be under, under, um, understated. If you look at a mature economy, uh, it would be about a three times multiples. For every dollar spent, um, $3 is generated or circulates within an economy. If you look at the, the Northern Territories, my understanding is more like 0.6 to 0.8 at best. So we see a lot of leakage. Uh, and as that industry becomes tighter and the employment shrinks, we've got to do a better job of keeping that local. Do you have any thoughts on what Paul just said or, or the question itself? I think it will uh, develop uh, by itself. Uh, if there's a uh, mining project ongoing, uh, well, my thumb rules say that for each 
guy you have doing mining, you got two other guys outside the mining that will be employed towards that industry, right? So, so it's, um, I don't think it's going to be a problem getting, you know, supporting companies to the mining industry developing in, in Greenland. I think the biggest problem we have in Greenland is that uh, I think our total workforce is about 35,000 people that kind of, you know, point out where we are in Greenland. And so the Greenlandic miners will always be part of an international workforce. I don't think we ever will see a totally 100% uh, Greenlandic operating mine. I know for now we're talking about uh, Red Dog. I think that that uh, due to the IBA agreement uh, they made over there, the aim was that 80% of all employees at Red Dog should be you know, local. They have never been above 65%, I think. I went there two years ago and, and got updated on the numbers, you know, so, so uh, I was quite interested in, you know, you, you can make your aim for how much local labor you will hire for operating this mine. But again, you, you have to be realistic, you know, what is possible. And, and uh, I think we should be uh, quite lucky in Greenland if we can cover 50% of, of uh, the needed labor for operating mines. More like I have a follow-up question for you, uh, for Hans, and then I will ask Paul later. Like, how do we make sure the indigenous community concerns are at the forefront when it comes to the new mining projects? Set up in Greenland is that that uh, uh, we, we have this uh, the Mineral Act from government that, that companies have to follow. Um, there will be uh, public meetings and and a lot of you know survey for the project. And then uh, a key issue is the IBA agreement. That is a agreement between the local municipality the government and the company. So uh, right now we have, you know, uh, what are we now? Four municipalities in Greenland. So, you know, local government will be part of that IBA negotiation. And there you will find the numbers. What are the demands going to be for the company? We're talking about, uh, you know, what are the aim for local employment? What are they going to spend on, on, uh, on uh, social activi activities locally? Uh, they have to uh, make a education fund that we can apply to, that, that sort of thing. So it's, it's kind of a key issue in Greenland, that is the IBA and, and uh, the local are, you know, it is the, the municipality that have, you know, one third of that uh, negotiation. Uh, same question for Paul. Yeah, I think, um, you know, before I, I hit that question, I want to, you know, we, we sort of talked about Red Dog at 65%. Employment. Uh, I'm not privy to what that impact benefit agreements with the states, but you know, I think setting those high bars uh, means you're always striving to achieve, right? And I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing, right? So I don't think you know we've, we've said 80% and we're hitting 65. Is that a failure? No, that's an opportunity, right? So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, one one stat that I like to always uh, talk about for Northwest Territories. If you take Deton Cho, uh, the company that I represent, and Chilito Investment Corporation, which is a, a neighboring indigenous group that we, we work with uh, quite closely at times. If you take our local employment, we're the largest private employer of local people uh, in the territory. And we employ as many people as the three local peoples of three mines combined. And a lot of those people are generated uh, because of an active mining sector. So I think that is an incredible uh, success story, uh, you know, that you've got indigenous groups that are key drivers of the economy, just like in Alaska, 
now obviously at a smaller scale, you know, uh, uh, less population, but you are seeing very active participation uh, by indigenous groups in these economies, uh, largely driven by the resource sector, right? So, and that's, that's success. Now, you know, sort of going back to your question about, you know, how do we ensure that voice uh, indigenous and, and sort of uh, ensuring the, the oversight uh, from a resource extraction standpoint by indigenous groups, uh, you know, we're, we're very fortunate uh, in Canada and, and particularly in the Northern regions that we've got a very robust uh, oversight um, through various uh, boards uh, that ensure that those projects are at the highest level of environmental scrutiny. Uh, and there's active participation uh, by those uh, Indigenous groups as those projects work through a permitting process. Uh, and you've seen, you know, not just in NDBT, but across the three territories where projects uh, have either been made uh, by Indigenous groups in terms of their endorsement or in cases, um, you know, lately pauses put on them because of concerns brought forward by those uh, Indigenous communities. So I think you see a very active process where it works. Uh, and I think it obviously in the best interest of, of industry uh, to ensure that they're building uh, those positive relationships with those Indigenous communities. And as they work through the permitting process, um, you know, seeing success in, in getting those projects to the forefront. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on situations where there are disagreements within a particular Indigenous community and how that can be resolved regarding a resource extraction project. And what I think specifically thinking about is the case we saw the Wet'suwet'en, the blockade there regarding the coastal gas link pipeline. And some members of that community were very much in favor of the project and some members of that community were very much opposed to it. And that obviously led to impasse. So I'm wondering how situations like that can be navigated where there isn't a, that sort of agreement within it, an Indigenous community. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's it's getting a little bit outside of my um, uh, sort of, not understanding, but um, uh, operating environment, I guess. You know, you start getting into talking about at the community level between hereditary chiefs, elected chiefs, uh, and elected members, you know, from a government body standpoint. Uh, and that can be really challenging, right? And especially when you start talking about things like pipelines that are, you know, crossing obviously very much multi jurisdictional, et cetera, right? Um, you know, th those projects can be uh, a little bit thorny uh, at the best of times, right? Uh, you know, where, where's the opportunity? How do we cross that? Again, this is just personal views. Uh, I think as a nation, as Canada, we need to put more time and energy uh, into building capacity. Uh, and we're seeing more of that. Um, so if you look at Future Skills Centre Canada, uh, that has a, a northern uh, centre that they're developing dedicated uh, to some of that. Um, you know, you're seeing um, uh, uh, from the federal government standpoint where there's a billion dollars for infrastructure, Alberta has got uh, their billion dollar um, Indigenous Opportunities Fund. So you're seeing opportunities to, to uh, give Indigenous groups opportunity, access uh, to really be involved in these projects. But we can't lose sight of building capacity um, at that community level. Again, going back to the concept, how do we build good, meaningful Indigenous businesses? around the concept of, of economic reconciliation where they can actively participate and build their own economies, right? And all of a sudden now you've got uh, not only, um, you know, employment opportunities, but real full-blown um, uh, partnerships where Indigenous groups and communities can see the meaningful upside of participating uh, and having a voice at the table where, you know, now they, they, can, they can talk about how that project proceeds, right? And you're seeing uh, Indigenous groups now having representation on boards, 
um, you're seeing uh, greater diversity uh, from that governance standpoint, et cetera, that's only going to enhance uh, the future of those, some of those projects, right? So I think we're really a, a little bit at that transitional period. And I think it's really important to understand that, you know, when you look at it from a national perspective across the country, and I'm sure Greenland is no different and other jurisdictions around the world, various communities and, and groups um, are developing at different paces, right? And you can't uh, paint all indigenous groups with one brush. Um, you know, some are, are, are long in their journey in terms of economic development and, and creating this. Others are just starting that journey. Uh, and it takes time to really develop that. Well, then Greenland, it, it's a good business for the mining company to hire local workforce as, uh, if they are qualified. Uh, because it's very expensive for getting people from other countries, you know, fly in, fly out operation. I've been to Nunavut Mining Symposium a couple of times. And, uh, well, the first time I was quite confused. You know, who is taking the decisions? In Nunavut, they have, you know, their uh, democratic elected local government. But besides that, you have large uh, Inuit organizations that actually have, you know, a lot of uh, legal rights. As uh, in, in Canada, you gave a lot of crown land back to uh, to some of the people. And uh, I was kind of confused, you know. Uh, I know that this Inuit organization have a land area the size of Germany in within uh, Nunavut, you know, and, and they, you know, make the calls there. And then you got your local government, and then you got your federal government. Uh, I was told that if if your feet are in water, then you are on federal terms. <laughs> if you are on land, you are either you know within the government of Nunavut or within this uh, Inuit organization's area. So that was kind of very very different uh, things for us to experience because in Greenland we are considered we have one government and we are one people. Uh, and I think that that might be um, one of the reasons that a lot of Canadian companies are actually quite interested in Greenland, because it's easier to maneuver around those. You don't have to negotiate with a lot of groups in order to get your project uh, going. So I, I was quite surprised, you know, uh, I really got my eyes open for, you know, how big a difference it is between Canada and Greenland. Yeah, and, and I think that's, it's a, it's a fair comment. Um, you know, when you look at three territories, um, Indigenous absolutely have a very strong voice. Um, and from a population standpoint, it should. Uh, so, I mean, Yukon at 25% Indigenous, uh, Northwest Territories at approximately 52, and Nunavut, um, where, where you had your experiences, I think they're at about 85%, right? Um, and, and so therefore, you know, when you start looking at self-governing uh, relationships and, and government to government uh, relationships, um, yes, you, you do, it's not that you deal with one government for sure. Um, there are going to be sort of uh, multi-levels and that's where they work on helping uh, companies navigate that from a regulatory standpoint, for sure. So I, I think I'll, I'll change gears a little bit, um, not entirely because this relates quite a lot to what you said earlier about ESGs, but what we've seen a lot recently in extractive sectors has been a focus on how we can enjoy the economic benefits of it while also keeping in mind the sustainability part of it. So I'll open this up to Hans first and of course bring Paul in afterwards, but how do we ensure that mining projects, and especially the mines themselves, are environmentally sustainable? And do you think enough is being done to address the environmental 
the sustainability aspect of that? Yeah, um, it's a huge question, and uh, it involves uh, our mineral resource authorities and our environmental authorities. Uh, you know, all the companies have to get approval from from government departments that that they can do it this way. Uh, I do see a lot of effort from the companies to uh, uh, cut down the emission of things. For instance, uh, I know that uh, the Tenbreeze project, that the rare earth uh, element in the southern part of Greenland, have just made a agreement with the uh, national energy company that all energy for that project will be by a hydropower plant. So uh, the CO2 uh, emission will be, you know, zero for that problem as long as they can, you know, get access to uh, to a, a hydropower plant. So that's going to help, especially because rare earth elements are, you know, normally uh, a very big energy consumer operation. Um, then I know of of uh, uh, Hudson Resources are doing some experimental. It's uh, anthracite, and they have their, their their ore is up the mountain, and they are investigating when they're going downhill, fully loaded with the big dump trucks, is to uh, uh, collect the energy from the brakes all the way down. So uh, uh, you will have that energy for going uphill with an empty load. You know, it, it could be a, a good reason that will save a lot of energy and and. Um, they are doing experiments about they have this it is in, in the fjord and they have this big what you call that it's just floating where they land things if they could get kind of a vans owner because you got the tide going in and out the floor so they might be able to collect a, a lot of energy from uh, from the tide <clears throat> so i think all in all the, the companies are um, going more and more into green solutions and also because some of it are, you know, uh, it's, it's a good business. For sure. So I think, you know, sustainability is uh, obviously got different tracks as it relates to, to the resource sector. You know, if you look at, at Yukon, uh, where they're building out their hydroelectric grid, uh, their projects coming on stream, they are constrained. Uh, so they're really hitting that upper limit. If they bring on another mining project um, without doing a substantial upgrade, they're going to be challenged uh, to provide a power source, right? Uh, in NWT and Nunavut, um, unfortunately, uh, because of limited uh, infrastructure, uh, a lot of those projects right now uh, are all going to be um, uh, producing through uh, diesel cogeneration, right? So if you look at the diamond mines in Northwest Territories, uh, all of that produced uh, through, uh, through diesel, through the use of diesel for, for power gen. Now, that being said, you know, we're actively looking at ways to bring on uh, green energy sources uh, to power these projects uh, for, you know, future generations. Um, but that's going to take a substantial amount of um, time and, and, uh, and, and capital to do so, right? And that's where we're working with the federal government uh, in terms of, quote unquote, nation building uh, projects where we can bring these on in the best interest of the country. Uh, whether it be road access, uh, internet, uh, or power, um, you know, that's something that we need to tackle in, in, in the North. But outside of that, I mean, there's also, you know, incredible opportunities where if you look at uh, from an environmental bond standpoint, ensuring that the money is there to clean up those sites and they're not left uh, to the state. You know, we've certainly had some historical issues around that. So when we look at some of our legacy projects like Giant Mine in Northwest Territories, Pharaoh, in Yukon, those are billion dollar plus cleanups that are left to, uh, to the federal government. You know, we, we now have regimes in place that that won't happen again in the future. 
um, you're also seeing very active progressive reclamation that takes place uh, on our active mines today. So as opposed to you know going in and, and hydrating and, and taking as much out as, as you can, we're also progressively doing cleanup as we mine. Uh, so dive at Crew Rio Tinto is a good example of that, right? So by the time that mine gets to end of life, uh, I think that's forecast in the next four years or so, uh, there's already going to be a substantial amount of uh, cleanup that's being conducted. Um, so, I mean, perfect, no. Um, but I think some very progressive things have taken place in Northern Canada already that we can continue to improve on. Probably the biggest being uh, developing infrastructure for uh, energy sources. Great. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I was wondering what now when you say about uh, where you have to build things up after you're being done with it, it has to be environmentally sustainable. You wrote in an article uh, for up here that, quote, uh, brand counts when it comes to attracting resource development. We should build ours up. We are world leaders in sustainable development after all. That should be on top of every investor's mind when they think of North. How do we build that brand? Yeah, I, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I did that article uh, over this past winter. A lot of that driven through, again, the Indigenous uh, inclusion piece, which I think is a, a critical element, something that makes us stand out on the world stage. Um, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate to give some talks uh, recently in Mongolia, South Africa, etc., And, you know, whenever I sort of give those talks and, and talking about the practices that we have today, people are blown away by our Indigenous inclusion. And that really struck to me that we're not doing a good enough job, quite frankly. You know, we talk about the, the incredible resources we have, whether they be, um, you know, just from a natural resource standpoint, forestry. If you look at southern parts of, of the three territories, if, if you talk about uh, oil and gas, we've got some incredible proven and unproven resources. Uh, and then the mining side, obviously, from, from a mineral standpoint. So we talk about that at length. And if you go to uh, the various uh, mining symposiums, uh, PDAC in Toronto, you know, I think that's the uh, world's largest, um, you know, everybody's uh, grandstanding and talking about, you know, how rich these resources are. But what we're not doing enough time is talking about how we do it. We're not talking enough about that whole ESG component and, and how really we've got some world-class um, uh, resource extraction uh, that is uh, from an ethical standpoint, uh, from an oversight standpoint, uh, and, and from that Indigenous inclusion piece. And I think that's what I was talking about in, in sort of uh, creating that brand component. Tell the story, right? Um, so my group, Deton Chope, the Yellowknife Denny First Nations, um, you know, just announced uh, last year that were the miners of uh, a rare earth project, the Cheetah Project. Well, as far as we know, we're the first in Canada to be miners on our own land. You know, let's talk about that story. What does that look like, right? Let's, let's be that trendsetter uh, nationally and internationally. Thank you. Uh, and Hans, I will be very interested to hear uh, what you think Greenland's brand is and how it can be built. I think from the uh, politician side, there is big, big focus on doing this uh, sustainably. Uh, there's a big focus on the environmental side of, of uh, mining projects. And I think that, that uh, the, the companies are getting it. You know, it, it's part of their, what do you call that, social license to operate, is that you have some excellent plans for how to do this, the, the, the best way that you have a minimum of, of uh, pollution or because I know that, that the people of Greenland are very much into that, that we live on the land. 
we need our you know clean water for the fish and seals and and uh, our reindeer areas and all that so so uh, I, I think that that uh, as long as our politicians have the right focus on this is a must for operating Greenland I, I think it, it, it won't be a problem I think that the issue is that that uh, we have to uh, maybe convince people more that that we need the mining you know, if you can't grow it, you have to mine it. And we can't keep on saying, well, they can do that in, in, uh, in, in Russia or, you know, somewhere else. They can have the pollution there. <laughs> now, we have to work on our own projects uh, also because we, we need the jobs. We need the, the economy behind the mining industry in Greenland. But we have to do it sustainably. I, I really want to touch on that point very quickly, but I think that's a... I think that's a really, really valid point. And, you know, not trying to get too political, but if, if we're going to be touting in these in developed countries, Greenland, Canada, elsewhere, around uh, uh, green technologies, uh, then we also need to be investing in the supply chain. We can't simply say, you know, we're, we're going to have a renewable, a renewable economy and a green economy. And, and we're hearing lots of talk about that in, in, in sort of the developed um, uh, countries. But that also means uh, that we have to own and control the supply chain. And we simply can't uh, take that from other jurisdictions where they don't have the same oversight. I think that is a really, really valid point, And I agree 100%. I can tell you that I have a, we have a, what you call that, a powder buggy. You know, the car we're using for transporting explosives through the town. And the sticker says, this car and road are brought to you by the mining industry. Just to, you know, make people aware of where do things come from. How, can, how many rare earth elements are actually uh, in your cell phone? And that, then they start to getting it. You know, we need to have access to minerals. Uh, and, and, and the country need to have this industry in Greenland. We have to continue um, of working on people's awareness. What are the problems and the issue talking about the mining industry? As a Greenlander myself, let's say if I am against mining and I live in, for example, in Assaf, what would you tell me to get me more on board with the mining? Okay, so you are, you are testing my sales talent. <laughs> no, I, I think, I think uh, it will be about bringing things to attention that, that what are different minerals being used for. I could take, for example, a, uh, your car. If you have a car, I can pinpoint out, you know, this is zinc, this is iron, and, and you've got your GPS in your car. How many rare elements are there in that? And, you know, the whole technology behind you having a car. And I think that, 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 that uh, it will be my job to make you more aware of where do things come from. Uh, and and I, th I think it is simply a matter of, of knowledge. That, that uh, people have to accept that, that, that everything they take, you know, have some minerals in it. Uh, as I said, you know, if you can't grow it, you have to mine it. So that, that will be my, my biggest effort to convince you for being pro-mining. Okay, thank you. And uh, for Paul, a similar question. Now I'm not from uh, Canada, but I am Greenlandic. But what would you say to me if I lived in Canada? But if I was against mining and part of the indigenous people in Canada? Yeah, I mean... I think we're going to have increasingly more visibility around the supply chain. So if you look at blockchain technologies, et cetera, um, you know, you're seeing companies now that uh, like Apple, et cetera, they're starting to invest and say, hey, listen, you know, when we look at our technical, uh, our, our devices, 
what, what is our supply chain, right? Um, we've seen that from the manufacturing side uh, with Nike, et cetera, that have had uh, some issues around their supply chain, right? And at the end of the day, these companies are really marketers. Uh, they're not building products, but they, they, have to, they have to tell a story going back to, you know, talking about what is the brand, right? Um, so that supply chain is becoming increasingly more important in telling that story for these global uh, brand names. Um, so as we start having more visibility around where, what that supply chain is, you know, that will become to the forefront where we can tell the story better and we can be, I think it opens up people's eyes a bit more about where these, um, uh, where, where the supply comes from. Um, so what do we need to do on our side when, when I look in, in Canada? Again, going back to that article, uh, telling our brand, we need to be able to have those metrics and talk about some of those good things as well, right? Uh, until we're able to source um, the, the, the uh, minerals or resources that we require from somewhere else. So, I mean, we're looking at different technologies, uh, even um, uh, exploring uh, from space, et cetera. And, and who knows, maybe in our lifetime, we're able to do that. For the time being, you know, we have to get it from Earth. Uh, we need it for our quote unquote green economy. So therefore, how do we do it the most ethical way possible? How do we tell that story better? Uh, and then how do we paint the picture from a supply chain side uh, about sort of those good things, right? So again, going back to, you know, I love telling the story around the Indigenous inclusion about our resource sector, because I think that's incredibly powerful, right? Um, so we're able to uh, not only uh, participate and create meaningful employment, uh, we get to have Indigenous businesses that are controlled and managed by our Indigenous groups that are actively participating in that. So we're creating our own employment. That's a story that we need to do a better job telling, right? You know, how do we reduce, uh, you know, the footprint? How do we tell that ESG component? How are we doing that progressive reclamation mediation? I'm uh, conscious of the time here, so I just want to ask the two of you one final question to sort of wrap things up. And whether, and that's whether you see any opportunities for greater collaboration between mining industries in Canada and Greenland. Well, I, for one, would love to come over to Greenland, so I'll start there. That. Um, uh, you know, I think it all comes from uh, learning, et cetera, and, and, and sharing. You know, I heard some great things today that uh, I'm certainly going to do some thinking about. Um, you know, I really think it comes down to, uh, you know, for those northern jurisdictions, we do have unique opportunities and challenges as it relates, whether that be northern Canada, Greenland, Iceland, et cetera, Russia. You know, so the more that we can sort of sit down and talk and learn from each other, I think it really starts there, right? Um, you know, I, I did know that Greenland has a lot of interest from Canadian mining companies. So I think you're already seeing uh, Canada investing in Greenland um, because, you know, it is an attractive area to invest in. So I think that's sort of happening a bit uh, organically, but I think we can definitely uh, put more effort and energy into understanding each of these jurisdictions and how do we learn from each other in terms of those best practices. Well, uh, Paul, you'll be welcome here uh, anytime. I'd love to show you our operation. All right, I'm packing my bags. As soon as COVID's over, I'm coming over. Yeah. Now, I, I, see, I see a um, huge potential for uh, a, a much larger co collaboration between you know, similar organizations uh, throughout the Arctic. Uh, and I have been working with the thought for some years now uh, what we need to develop is kind of a Arctic best practice for mining. Uh, so, uh, and it's very hard. I talk to people in Alaska and in Russia and in Canada, all that, everything thinks it's a great idea. We should do it. 
but there's a lot of obstacles. Uh, and I think that, that uh, it could be on the agenda of the Arctic Council that you develop a collaboration for similar organizations that operate within the Arctic Circle. But they have a kind of a formal collaboration and, and for, well, from our era, it will be to work with best practice within the Arctic, within the Arctic. And there you can put in, you know, sustainability and, and you know, safety training and all that because it is special to operate within the Arctic Circle. So, uh, yeah, um, of course, I need, I need, uh, yeah, well, the damn Corona have stopped everything. Uh, it's okay to have a Zoom meeting, but you need all those. Uh, if you are living within the Arctic, you know that that personal relations are the key to everything up here. Uh, so um, I haven't been traveling since uh, we had the outbreak of, of COVID. I've been, you know, grounded, and I can feel it that everything slowly, you know, uh, you get less and less contact with people that actually you should uh, interact with. Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully next year to go to PDAC and and uh, I'll go to uh, Alaska. I'll go a lot of you know. We need to talk more together, but I think that, that we need to get into, uh, if we want to proceed with a, a, a job like that, we need to go to the Arctic uh, Council and say, we have a suggestion that we need to collaborate more within the Arctic Circle, uh, also for, for keeping the jobs within the Arctic Circle for local people. A lot of people that, that think it's, it's great. Well, I'm living in Florida, I'll take, I'll take one or two trips to Red Dog, you know, uh, not a problem, you know. Uh, no, we'll try to keep the jobs and, and, and the expertise within the Arctic Circle for, for the institutions, for the people, for everybody. That's great. I like, I like that idea, but, you know, absolutely. I think that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I think it makes a lot of sense, too. And to wrap up, before we say goodbye, I just wanted to ask whether there was anything that we hadn't mentioned that you wanted to get off your chest before this interview is over? Oh, there's always lots, but you know. Um, the one thing I always like to conclude, especially on the Canadian side, um, you know, obviously I'm personally very invested in the Indigenous business space. It's my career, I've been into it for almost a decade. Um, I really, truly, personally feel that all Canadians uh, benefit when we have healthy Indigenous business and inclusion would that be within the resource sector and beyond. So it's in our best interest uh, as, as Canada, as a nation, uh, that we continue to build the capacity um, and, and to ensure that our Indigenous groups are included within, within our economy, whether it be economic reconciliation or just simply by the fact that, um, you know, that active participation helps build the economy. Um, but all of us as Canadians, uh, you know, should be investing and in, uh, ensuring the, uh, the future of, of Indigenous business. Thank you both very much for your time today. This was a really interesting discussion and I appreciate hearing from both of you. It really was. And have a nice, great day. Yeah, thank you very much for the invite. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Appreciate it. Hope, hope to see you eventually sometime again. <laughs>